I'm John Gardiner, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Model railroading is fun. You just have to know how to do it. In this episode, I'll be going over the elements of a realistic model railroad track plan designed for operations. by telling you that um, this track plan workshop episode used to be um, only one episode. Th- then I uh, k- kind kind of wrote 20 pages of material for it. 
<laughs> so I've had to split it up into two episodes. The first one is going to be uh, approaching a track plan from a train movement perspective, uh, going over realistic operations and describing to you all of the basic parts of a railroad and how it operates in a uh, realistic and global context. And then the second part, which will be the next episode, will be focusing more uh, on a model railroad track plan from a human perspective. It will be going over all of the various elements uh, that you should look for when designing a track plan that suits your interests, and it should also tell you how to design a track plan uh, to fit both the space that you have and to make the most efficient use of it. Um, but for now, let's get into this episode. As I have alluded to many times before, uh, model railroads generally are designed for operation. Uh, there are the so-called loop runners, but those people are uh, more often in the collecting side of the hobby. Um, and actually, I recently read a fascinating article from a 2016 O-Gage Modeler magazine that detailed how even collectors are now starting to tear down their layouts and design them for more operation-oriented running. While I might be talking up operations a lot as some sort of manifestation of the hobby from a purest, historically accurate perspective, I should emphasize that operations can and have been tailored to fit everybody's interests. Um, probably the best way to view it is uh, like some form of a chess game, but where uh, each person is involved with the movements of their own chess piece. And each piece has its own designated pattern of movement, and they have to move their piece around in a larger context with how other people arrange their own pieces. Probably the best way to get a comprehension of what operations are like, besides reading up on it, would be to go out and uh, operate a model railroad for yourself. Contact a local club or get in touch with any other local modelers, and I'm sure that they will be able to put you up with a round-robin group that regularly goes to other people's model railroads, and you can take part in a much larger operating session. So that way you can get a feel for how a railroad flows when there are multiple people running it against a CTT system or a schedule. But before we go into the elements of a track plan, it's probably wise to review the purpose of model railroading and the purpose of railroading in general. So while operations are different from every pike, based on the era that they're set in, the type of cargo that they carry, the prototype operations, and also the interests of the layout owner, as I have described before, they all usually involve some of the following features. Dropping off and picking up freight cars from industry spurs and delivering them to a destination, pretending that they are loaded with cargo. Scheduling trains from place to place as a means of moving freight cars or passengers. Yards for the sorting of cars between scheduled trains to get freight cars to their final destinations. Engine facilities to park, refuel, and maintain the locomotives, cabisse, and other non-revenue cars. Staging yards, which represent the rest of the world off-model, like the wings of a theater. Inviting your friends over to play the parts of engineers, conductors, and other railroad personnel, allowing for multiple trains to run at any given time. And prototypical paperwork, like waybills and schedules, to facilitate the moving of cars from one place to another and the coordination of the movement of trains. Now that you have the general idea of how operations work in your mind, I'm going to go over all of the basic and individual components that a railroad or model railroad can be broken apart into, and I'll explain how it all works together. The most basic component of railroad operation is the runaround. In model railroading, a runaround, or siding, is a track parallel to the main line, 
connected to it at both ends by turnouts. It is identical to the example that I used in a previous episode for describing DC block wiring, where, if you go from one side to the other, you can have track A that splits into tracks 1 and 2, which then merge back into a single track B. This type of setup has two major and critical functions. First, as in the previous episode, it allows two trains to pass each other or one to overtake another. In our example, one train pulls into track 2 from either direction, and then another train proceeds across tracks A and B via track 1, then the train on track 2 may continue. When it comes to delivering cargo, there is another important function of the runaround. If an industry spur is on a trailing switch, meaning that it points in the direction behind that of the train travel, all you need to do to deliver a piece of cargo is to split the train such that the last car connected to the locomotive's cut is that destined for the industry. Leave the rest of the train on the main, pull forward, throw the switch, and back the car into the industry. Then leave it there, pull forward, throw the switch, and reconnect to the train, and you have now delivered a car with cargo to a destination. However, that is for a trailing point, when the switch points behind the direction of train travel. But what if the turnout is a facing switch, meaning that it points in the direction of train travel, such that a train going forward can go either on the main or into the spur? If you were to pull forward and deliver the car to the industry, the locomotive would be trapped away from the main line between the car and the end of the spur. This is where the runaround comes in. First, pick out the car of interest and drop the rest of the train temporarily on the main, say, far off on track B. Then take the car of interest behind the locomotive and bring it forward onto track 1, parking it there. Now, with a locomotive running light, without cars, pull forward onto track A, switch the turnout, and reverse the locomotive. This lets the locomotive run all the way down track 2 to track B again, passing the freight car of interest that you have now just parked on track 1. Flip the switch on track B and pull the locomotive forward. Now the locomotive is connected to the freight car on track 1 again, but this time from the opposite end. This turns a facing point move into a trailing point move, like that described above. The third and most important use of runarounds is to reverse the direction of entire trains. Normally, at the end of long spurs and some branch lines, there will be a need to turn a train around, but without the use of such luxury track arrangements as return loops, the railroad equivalent of a cul-de-sac, or Ys, the railroad equivalent of a three-point turn, both of which are space-consuming, and because land costs money, are therefore also expensive. As we now know, reversing an entire train can be very easily done with a runaround per above. And, just to dispel a common beginner myth here, yes, it was completely prototypical for steam locomotives to run at the head end of a train with the locomotive facing backwards for distances of up to 40 or 50 miles. Industry Spur Unlike runaround tracks, which are sometimes referred to as sidings, a spur is a single-ended diversion from the main line that ends permanently shortly thereafter. Nearly always, these run right up to an industry, loading dock, seaside wharf, or other revenue-producing facility, but they can also be used for purposes such as equipment storage. As discussed, they can be either facing or trailing point. Additionally, because their use is often light, they are usually in various states of disrepair, 
anything from slightly lower to the ground than the main line, to ballasted with dirt and completely covered in weeds. Occasionally, when the track ends, it will do so in a well-bolstered stopping device, called a bumper or bumping post, but this is only in cases when a car running off the track would cause damage to people or property. Otherwise, they more often end in much less strengthened devices, like wheel stops, which are the railroad equivalent of door wedges or airplane chocks, a cross tie placed above one rail and beneath another, or most simply, a pile of dirt. Main Line While this might seem obvious, the main line is often overlooked as something important. Across the whole railroad, it can be a mix of single or double-tracked, or less often triple and quadruple-tracked, and is often very well-maintained, set two to six feet off the ground, with clean ballast, usually has additional passing tracks and sidings at towns or critical points along the line, such as at the entrance to a bottleneck, and is nearly always strictly linear, seldom ever doubling back on itself or making loops. As should be obvious from real life, Main lines of nearly all railroads are non-circular, with literally the only exception being very small tourist railroad operations, such as at many theme parks. This is quite simply because of traffic dynamics. Transportation systems, by design, are meant to take things from here to there. And so, a second track running back from there to here, by a different route, would simply be a waste. However, model railroaders enjoy seeing trains run, and the easiest way to do that is to have a main line be continuous or circular, because it requires no operator intervention to keep the train running. Thus, while model railroaders usually add options for continuous running, in order to preserve realism, we usually build the railroad so that it can be operated in a point-to-point -point fashion, and then we hide the continuous running connection, such as in a tunnel somewhere, so that it's not obvious that the train can move in a circle. From a real railroading perspective, to prevent fatalities of equipment or personnel, all movements on the main line and the allowance of a train to move along the main line, called that train's authority, are protected by some hard and fast system. The railroad rule books, as is often said, were written in blood. And this is no exaggeration. Railroads are primarily used in the economic system because the low friction of steel wheel on steel rail makes them a vastly more fuel-efficient mode of transportation, even today, when some railroads can carry one ton of cargo on one gallon of gas 600 miles. However, at the same time, trains are literally multi-million ton objects with an enormous momentum riding on a very low friction guideway. What's more, the train's air brakes work with air, which means that a braking maneuver can only propagate through the train at the speed of sound. With modern trains being as long as they are, the front of your train can start braking up to a full 30 seconds before the rear of your train starts braking. Couple these with the fact that most mainline trains travel at speeds where their stopping distance greatly exceeds their sight distance, and you can see how easily problems can arise. For these reasons, it should be clear that the authority of a train to occupy the main line is of critical importance to all train movements. Side note, for these same reasons, never, ever, under any circumstances whatsoever, try to beat the train at a railroad crossing, even if you are a pedestrian.
For even if the engineer sees you and starts braking well before he arrives at you, as aforementioned, you will still be crushed painfully. Please don't try to beat the train. The most famous example of a failure to comply with a mainline occupancy protocol is that of Jonathan Luther Jones of the Illinois Central Railroad. Jonathan Jones was a famous locomotive engineer whom demonstrated the use of the latest, most powerful locomotive that the Illinois Central had, a 280 consolidation, at the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in commuter service, where he was viewed as the test pilot or astronaut of his day. Following his role at the fair in 1895, he was servicing his locomotive at speed, albeit after putting the fireman in charge and reducing the speed of the train, when he noticed a group of children playing on the tracks. As he shouted to them to move out of the way, one of the young girls froze in fear. Jones ran to the locomotive's pilot, grabbed hold of the firebox, and leaned out as far as he could, catching the young girl before she was hit by the locomotive's wheels. After both elements of exemplary service, Jones was promoted to the Memphis, Tennessee, to Canton, Mississippi leg of the Illinois Central's premier train, train numbers two and three, the Chicago to New Orleans Cannonball, where he made a reputation for himself by bringing delayed trains back on schedule. On the fateful night of April 30th, 1900, three freight trains met at a passing track at Vaughan, Mississippi. Per the rule book, which all railroaders should have memorized even today, Rule 98 says that they were supposed to have the main clear five minutes prior to the scheduled train's arrival and must keep the main unoccupied until that train passes, even if it's behind schedule, or until they are told to do otherwise by an order from the dispatcher. If they were unable to do so, they were supposed to follow the most infamous rule in all of railroading, Rule 99, which says to send a flagman back one mile with ten torpedoes and six fusees, whereby they will affix the signal torpedoes to the track to auditorily warn oncoming trains. If the flagman is recalled, they are to remove the torpedoes and drop a 15-minute burning fusee behind them every ten minutes as they walk back to their train. That night, the three freight trains exceeded the length of the siding by ten car lengths. For some inexplicable reason, in direct violation of the rules, no flagman was sent out. Only two minutes behind schedule, train number three began to round a 1.5-mile-long blind curve. Upon exiting, Jones shouted that there was something on the tracks and ordered his fireman to jump from the train, which he did only 300 feet before impact, whereupon Jones spent his last seconds alive reducing the speed of the train from 75 miles an hour to an estimated 35. Due to his heroic work, the only casualty of the incident was Jonathan Luther Jones, more commonly known as Casey Jones. So when you hear of an old head like me waxing poetic about railroad schedules, signals, and rules even if you don't plan on operating your railroad with such a system. Keep in mind that railroads were always run with a schedule and a rulebook in mind. Failure to do so could, and has, claimed lives. Whew. 
Here are the three most common systems for controlling mainline authority, and the times with which they were most commonly associated. Keep in mind that these time spans are vast generalizations, and any given railroad could have its own unique choice of operating pattern, if not a mixture on different divisions. From the earliest railroads to about the 1930s, mainline occupancy was controlled by timetables. A train was forbidden to leave the safety of a passing siding if the timetable showed a train of a higher superiority was due between when the train could leave the safe place and when the train could reach the next safe place. If a train was late, and if the dispatcher did not contact you through a station agent, you had to wait up to 12 hours for the train to arrive. And if it didn't arrive by that time, you assume that it either never existed or has been demoted to bottom priority. Thus, ironically and not often known by the general public, timetables served two purposes. First, for the general public to predict when and where trains are due in a perfect world without delays. And second, to give the individual railroad crews the information on train authority to safely make decisions about when and where they should move their train in the event that trains are running late. This type of operation is gaining popularity on model railroads, because despite the added effort required to pull it off, it decentralizes train movement decisions across the entire railroad, and gives every person present the ability to play a part in controlling the unfolding ballet. While timetable and train order, or TT and TO as it's called, does allow for a dispatcher whom can rewrite the schedule through train orders delivered at station buildings to train crews, it still decentralizes the command structure and therefore can be a more engaging system for all of the individual train crews. All subsequent forms of train control, however, give the authority decisions to a single higher power, which some believe can steal the fun away from the train crews. From about the 1940s until about the 1980s, railroads ran on a system called Track Warrant Control, or TWC, where every train had to contact the dispatcher for movement instructions, and then both the train crew and the dispatcher filled out identical forms, called warrants, with those instructions, giving the train an authority to move. In the event of a dispute among train crews, these warrants were displayed in order to sort out discrepancies. For the most part, TWC is fairly popular among model railroaders because it takes the least effort to implement. Some people who dislike the prototypical paperwork decide to simplify the matters even further to a mother-may-I type set of operations, sans paperwork entirely, i.e., dispatcher, may I move my train from Heersburg to Town? In the modern era, train movement is largely governed by CTC, or Centralized Traffic Control, which is basically a network of signals, like stoplights, that are multifunctional. First, the signals most basically show block occupancy, i.e. green if the next blocks are all clear, yellow if the block in front of this one is occupied, and red if the block immediately in front of you is occupied. However, the signals can also be controlled by a dispatcher, so that more complicated train movements can be choreographed at his or her will. For example, if a high-priority and high-speed passenger train is due through a single-track bottleneck in an hour, and if a slow freight train were to take 90 minutes to clear the bottleneck, the dispatcher could decide to hold the freight train ahead of the bottleneck to keep the passenger train on time, even though the bottleneck would be empty when the freight train would arrive. 
Even though CTC is the most modern and versatile method, it also is the most hardware-intensive to implement, because you need to run hundreds of meters of wires to dozens of functioning lighted signals all across the layout. Nevertheless, some modelers, beginners included, are deciding to simplify this by having the dispatcher run around the railroad putting paper pictures of signal light configurations up, netting the same effect but manually overriding the massive effort and cost to require electronic CTC systems. Once the layout is completed, this is generally and slowly replaced with a functioning LED and electrically based system. Whew. Now that we're on with that massively important element, we can move on to... Interchanges. Interchanges are what make railroads a national network. An interchange is a piece of track that connects two railroads upon which they set out freight cars destined for industries on the other railroads' tracks. From a modeling perspective, interchanges are important for multiple reasons. First, they are what is referred to as a universal industry, because they give you an excuse to run literally any type of freight car ever over your railroad. Don't have a chemical plant on your layout, but like the look of tank cars? Wonderful! Your local factory just got a shipment of petroleum from Texas that's sitting on the interchange right now. Just as importantly, interchanges are very small and low profile. They are literally just a single track that can run off the edge of the layout or behind a hill. This can be a nifty space-saving technique as a way to generate a lot of traffic without taking too much space away from your layout for other things. Finally, of major importance for beginners, because most interchanges run off the edge of the layout, they make natural spots for future expansion of your model railroad. Staging As discussed in previous episodes, staging is a way to represent trains moving along the entire railroad, even the parts that are not modeled. While they can be as expansive as 20 or more tracks, with each track being 3 or more meters long, for the purposes of beginner railroads, these can simply be one or two tracks hidden in a tunnel or a closet or in a detachable cassette that can plug into the layout only when the layout is being operated. Depending on how rudimentary the railroad is, staging could even be represented by parking a train in a tunnel on the main line. Once more, the idea behind staging is to represent how the train travels beyond the basement. Most model railroads will be incalculably smaller than real railroads, and so, by pretending that the train came from somewhere, stopped over within what we can see, and then proceeded to somewhere else, it makes our, in reality, small model railroads feel like they are connected to a much larger industrial and economic landscape which is out of sight just over that hill or around that bend. I must re-emphasize that staging yards need not be anything complicated. For the three-and-a-half-foot by five-foot winter-themed layout that I gifted my family one Christmas, I hid a single spur one train length long underneath a mountain ridge. Except for a hole cut in the edge of the layout to access the turnout to the spur inside of a tunnel, nobody would ever have known it was there. By adding this spur, I could take one train off the main line and pretend it had gone to the big city, in addition to having the track clear to run a different set of trains around the layout. Less frequently, you'll find the occasional need to set out a cut of cars off the main line, but not at an industry. 
Situations like these mostly occur at otherwise very small towns that are the terminus of a branch line or at the gateway to a large industry. The purpose of these tracks is just to act as a mini one or two track yard where you can just hold cars temporarily while you're off doing something else. In the former example of the end of a branch line, it could be a place to hold your train while you turn it around and shunt the cars to and from all of the town's industries. And in the latter example of the gateway to a large industry, it can be a place for the mainline train to put a cut of cars for the industry switcher to get to later. Yards. Yards existed in a special space from the rest of the railroad called yard limits. Outside of yard limits, you must get authority of the dispatcher or timetable to move. But inside yard limits, all except first-class trains had to proceed at what is called restricted speed, a speed at which you can stop in half the distance of sighting an obstruction. The most basic element of a yard is the classification track. This is a track that is specifically set aside for the temporary storage of cars as they are reshuffled and reorganized into cars of like destination for imminent departure on new trains. Usually, there are many classification tracks all lined up in parallel to each other and are connected by a yard ladder, which is a string of sequential turnouts at one or both ends. Think of classification tracks like all the sequential piles of cards in a game of solitaire. They all serve to hold cards, or cars, while you reorganize them into a desired order. As for the rest of the yard, I can do no better than friend of the show Craig Biskeyer's Ten Commandments of Yard Design. Here they are, adapted from his marvelous website that I cannot recommend enough to search up. Commandment 1. Thou shalt not foul the main. The main line is the artery that carries the lifeblood of the railroad. If it becomes obstructed, it causes major problems to the system. Prototype railroads go to great lengths to keep the mains clear, and so should you. Ideally, the main line should only have two turnouts leading to the yard, one at each end, only used when complete trains are entering or leaving the yard. Exception to Commandment 1 When planning a yard for a lightly used branch line or a small stub-ended terminal, it isn't always necessary to keep the main clear. If the branch line only supports one or two trains a day, there usually isn't a problem with using the main, even as a yard lead. Like all things, use common sense to address contextualizations. Commandment 2 Thou shalt provide a dedicated lead track. After the main, the most important track in the yard is the yard lead, also sometimes called a drill track. The lead is the backbone of the yard. It is the track all of the classification tracks either connect to or branch from. The yard switcher should always be able to get to any classification track in one forward move and escape back to the lead from almost anywhere in the yard in one reverse move. Think of the yard as a garden rake, where the lead is the handle and the classification track are all the tines. All tracks radiate up and away from the lead, none turn back in the other direction, and thus all the turnouts are facing point switches. Because the switcher uses the lead to drill, or shunt rail cars, in and out of body tracks, the lead must be as long as, or longer than, the longest yard track. 
This way, the switcher never has to double a cut of cars to move it from one track to another. Commandment 3. Thou shalt not foul the yard lead. Now that we've cleared the main and given the switcher a track of its own to work from, we have to ensure that the switching crew can do their job no matter what lunacy is going on around them. Therefore, try to avoid including crossovers or other arrangements that interfere with the yard lead or the switch crew's ability to keep on classifying indefinitely. Most importantly, this allows the switcher to work without interruption from other locomotives in the yard, and similarly, this allows trains to operate without interruption by the yard switcher. Yards with active tracks that cut across the lead will constantly be delayed and in turmoil. It can't always be avoided, but do all that you can to prevent making it absolutely necessary. Commandment 4. Thou shalt use arrival departure tracks. If we can't use the main for anything, and we can't use the yard lead to move trains in and out, how the hell do we get trains off the main and into the yard, and vice versa? We have to include a special track or tracks called Arrival Departure, A-D, or A-N-D tracks. A-N-D tracks are sidings off the main with a connection to the yard lead, where trains are stored temporarily while they are broken down or built up. The yard switcher should be able to cross over from the lead, grab a cut of cars, or a whole train, from the A&D track, and pull them directly onto the lead to classify it, or pull a cut of cars from the yard body and kick it into the A&D track in just two moves. The A&D track should not be used as an extra classification track because that kind of subverts its purpose as a holding track off the main. If you have space, it's good to have more than one A&D track so you can handle making or breaking more than one train at any given time, but for small railroads, one is just fine. It usually works well to place the yard lead's access track on the end of the first A&D track, near where it joins the main, and then build a ladder track just beyond that for all the other A&D tracks. Exception to Commandment 4 For most beginner pikes, which will have small yards and few trains, it's okay to not have a dedicated A&D track, but the principle still holds. As best you can, you should have a track from which you can exit the yard without fouling the lead. This way, you have a track that you can use as an A&D track when the need arises, need here being defined as when it is necessary for a train to exit the yard while a switcher is actively switching. Commandment 5. Thou shalt provide a caboose track. Whether it's a stub, one end, or a siding, two ends, you need to have a place to store cabooses out of the way while classifying trains. Usually, the caboose track is located off either the yard ladder, the yard lead, or one of the A&D tracks. If it is a stub track, make sure that it is accessed easily from the yard lead and that it is from a facing point turnout. Commandment 6. Thou shalt provide a runaround. Somewhere on or off the lead, be sure to provide a short siding or set of crossovers to adjacent tracks. This allows the yard switcher to run around a car or two if needed. If there's no runaround, it can be very difficult to tack a caboose onto the back of a departing freight train without making the engineer back his whole train into the caboose track, which is not very prototypical and upsets all the sleeping conductors. A runaround is also very important if you have yard or industry tracks with trailing point switches within yard limits. Provide enough length to run around at least one of your longest car, if not more. 
Commandment 7. Thou shalt be able to reach everything. Regardless of how good your track work is, there is always going to be a super light car with an out-of-gauge wheel just waiting to pick a switch point. Nothing can be much of a problem as long as you can reach the spot of the accident, because it's quickly and easily fixed. Save yourself a ton of trouble and misery by planning your yard, and the rest of your railroad really, so that your operators can reach everything easily in the event of a problem. 24 to 30 inches is about the realistic limit for most people to reach and manipulate objects, any farther and they are more likely to harm the front of the layout. If you absolutely must have tracks that extend past 30 inches deep, make sure that the turnouts leading to them are in reach, since that's where nearly all problems occur. Layout height makes a difference too, as does the difference between decks on multi-level designs. Plan for success, basically. If you put parts of your yard out of reach, all is not lost. Consider a shallow access aisle on the other side of the yard. Just 16 inches is all that's necessary, and a few feet on either side to allow the operator to reach the critical points around the turnouts. This can be a duck or crawl under without access to the rest of the aisles, as the yard operator generally stays in one place during a session. Commandment 8. Thou shalt provide auxiliary yard tracks. Some of the best local operation in a yard comes from the auxiliary tracks that don't directly contribute to the revenue-producing activities like classifying cars. For example, a rip track, or repair-in-place track, is a feature of nearly every decent-sized prototype classification yard, but is seldom modeled. Usually, several cars each day come through that need minor repairs, like the fixing of dragging equipment, the replacing of worn brake shoes or wheel bearings, or changing a cracked air hose. These cars are directed to the rip track, where such light-duty problems are corrected quickly without the need to unload the car's contents. A short time later, the car is sent on its way. If you think of it as an industry track, it's an ideal element because it hosts any type of rail car and is switched often. Other kinds of auxiliary yard tracks are ready tracks for wreck trains, snowplows, or other special equipment, icing tracks for reefers, a cleaning track for house cars, etc. There are plenty of options. All of these make great additions if you can find room for them, even if they're not immediately adjacent to the yard. You might also find that a lot of engines spend a lot of time in your yard laying over, especially in the steam era. Whether they are waiting for trains to pull out, getting serviced, or just on standby, you need a place to hold them out of the way until they are needed. Your engine service tracks should allow direct escape from and to the A and D tracks so that locomotives can get away quickly and easily, with minimal disturbance to other trains and yard switchers. These standby tracks can be dressed with water towers, coal docks, sand houses, diesel fuel racks, ash pits, and other details. As the famous model railroader Tony Custer proved, you don't even need to include a space-hogging engine house, roundhouse, or turntable, just so long as you have the ready tracks. Exception to Commandment 8 On small yards, like branch lines, which are typically what is represented on beginner or small layouts, many tracks could also serve double duty, such as described above. For example, a defective car could be wheeled into the engine house in the absence of a rip track, and could also be the location of your engine service track or your caboose track. A classification track could also do double duty as a caboose track, or, as described above, an arrival and departure track. While you can take many space-saving techniques, make sure that all of these functions are represented logically in your yard, so that it can operate as completely as possible. 
Commandment 9. Thou shalt not overcrowd the yard. All yards have a certain threshold number of rail cars they can hold and continue to function well. Go beyond this threshold amount and the yard can quickly become gridlocked. Now, all yards have busy times, but a clogged yard quickly brings the entire railroad to a standstill. So, if this condition is chronic, start pulling cars off the railroad, limiting inbound train length, or rescheduling the trains to be more dispersed and evenly arriving across time. A good rule of thumb is to calculate how many cars you can hold in the body of the yard when all the tracks are full, then divide that number by two. This is the approximate threshold capacity of your yard. In practice, the true threshold capacity may differ, but this is the easiest way to calculate it. It is often said that, at any given point on a smoothly running railroad, a third of all cars are being classified in yards, a third of all cars are en route to their destinations, and a third of all cars are being held on industry spurs or on interchanges. Thus, Using the above rule of a yard's threshold capacity and simple math, we find that the total number of cars on your railroad for it to run smoothly should be no more than three times the threshold capacity of your yard, or 1.5 times the yard's maximum capacity. This actually works out pretty nicely for setting your railroad up for operation. Start by filling your yard to the brim, then deliver all of those cars to various places around the layout. Go back to the yard, fill it up halfway, and you're ready to operate. Commandment 10. Thou shalt make it easy to run. Because the yard is the operational center point of your railroad, it pays to design and build it as well as you can. Whereas a poorly laid turnout somewhere in a town along the line only affects the local functionality of that town, a poorly laid piece of track or a poorly designed track arrangement in a yard can quickly bring the entire railroad to a grinding halt. Here are some things you can do that will really help operators to run the yard efficiently, whether they're new to your railroad or veterans. Provide a large, easy-to-read schematic or control panel with color-coded track lines to differentiate what each track is. For instance, make the classification tracks white, the yard lead red, the A&D tracks green, the ready tracks blue, etc. Label anything that might be unclear or vague. Physically separate adjacent tracks with different purposes to emphasize their difference. This principle can also work in real-world modeling, too. For example, most modelers make the mainline visually distinct from the ocean of tracks by elevating it above all the others and giving it a different, usually brighter, color of ballast. You can also visually distinguish the ready tracks by covering them in ashes or oil spills from engine servicing, or the rip tracks by surrounding them with machine shop and repair equipment. Use your modeling, in addition to your track diagram, to readily hint at the function of each track. Keep the mechanical complexity down. Whenever you have a crossover where two turnouts always operate together, try controlling them with one toggle switch. Simplify controls wherever you can, and if it can be reasonably done, reduce the number of switches. This is exactly what a prototype railroad would do. Side note, from my own experience, pay attention to the prototype. Their money is on the line, so it's to their advantage to make things as smooth and simple as possible. When us modelers don't have our money on the line, uh, it can really be easy to uh, overcomplicate things unnecessarily. I'm, I'm thinking back to a few crossovers, which Craig pointed out on a past layout, which I definitely came to regret. 
Think about breaking information or turnout control panels into two or more sub-panels, especially if the distant groups of turnouts are more than two to three steps apart. Be very careful with your track work. If cars keep derailing every time they are pushed over a bad turnout, neither you nor anyone else will want to work in your yard. As long as you're making an effort to design a good yard, you should put some effort into building it well, too. A slight aside from Craig's work, I feel the need to add this from my own experience operating on other people's railroads. Model railroads are scaled down and usually run on scale time. While it now might take dozens of seconds to run between towns instead of hours, switching generally does not scale down in time at all. Thus, avoid any temptation to make a yard anything other than as easy and rapid to operate as possible. I remember one yard of which I was yardmaster that was set up like a switching puzzle, and I can say that it was a more or less miserable experience. Cars would get buried in obscure sidings, trains had to be made up on multiple tracks, we had to exit yard limits to access industry spurs that were back inside of yard limits, and some tracks couldn't even be accessed by the yard lead. Trains terminating at the yard sometimes had to be held in the next town while we cleared space for it, and one of our car floats was sent out ten scale hours behind schedule because we had to triage our activities in deference to the departing trains. Since there were no real consequences, it was still a very challenging and fun puzzle to figure out, but the railroad as a whole could have been benefited by a better yard. In closing, I hope that, with this episode, I have given every beginner a thorough comprehension of the components of railroad operations. Next episode, I will conclude with part two, where I will synthesize this information into what a track plan should mean from a modeler's perspective. If you have a question or comment, please email me at bgtmring at gmail.com, visit us on Facebook at The Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading, or, and I please do beg of you, visit our website at bgtmring.org. This website is the only reason that you have this podcast in your ears right now, for it is where it is hosted. Also, and I'm rather proud of myself with this, I, I think it looks beautiful. Um, I have already started to expand it to include more information. Uh, I have a link section of useful publications and other podcasts that you can listen to. Uh, there are comment sections on the bottom of every episode. Uh, and a wonderful contact page that can send an email directly to my inbox with minimal effort from you. As this show goes on, I must emphasize I will soon run out of topics to soliloquize on, so if you would like to continue listening to this podcast, please submit your questions and I will put them together into a Q&A episode. If you like the show, please give me a good review on iTunes and subscribe to our podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. And now, as your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your extra-topical modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is very telltale on the subjects we've spoken. Knowledge box. Noun. The Yardmaster's Office. Thank you for listening, and happy modeling.